Welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust, a podcast for digital transformation leaders where we discuss the latest cyber attack issues, enterprise security strategies, and current security events so that you can successfully accelerate network and security transformation. And now here's what's on our mind this week. Welcome back everyone to another episode of Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. I have my cohort Brad Molnir back with me as guest co-host. Brad, thanks for joining me again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pam. Um, you know, the last time it was it was interesting. I'm a kind of a, a you know longtime listener, first time caller type deal. So I'm I'm glad that I'm I'm back here for uh, round two. It's always great, Brad. So for our listeners, Brad had gone ahead and was my co-host last episode when we actually had Dr. Ron Ross on. Um, for those of you who may know or may not know, he is a fellow at NIST. And before we jump in, we thought it'd be interesting for this episode here to kind of do a touch base on all of the publications he talked about. There are so many publications. But before we jump into recapping um, our last episode with Dr. Ross, Brad, would you just kind of give us a little bit of your background? Because you have a really interesting background. It's really pertinent to this conversation today. Yeah, sure, Pam. Uh, so, you know, I started uh, in the cybersecurity space um, over 20 years ago. Uh, and when I got out of college, it's interesting, I um, double majored in journalism and like mass communications or communication theory and research. And I tripped my way into cybersecurity because one of the first jobs I got was writing system security authorization agreements, SSAAs, as they're known in the federal space for the Department of Defense. And that was something that Ron and I touched upon where uh, it was on the precipice of the Federal Information Security Management Act being enacted. And that's where Ron picked up a lot of the standards development that he talked about. And I lived and breathed that for the first decade of my career before I branched out into the uh, private industry. So, and, and I think that uh, that came across pretty clear where I was quite excited just to have the opportunity to speak with him and then really kind of thank him because he, he set the foundation for a lot of what I was learning in cybersecurity because I tripped into that space. I wanted to be a journalist, not, uh, not a cybersecurity professional and as fate would have it, that was one of the first things I was exposed to, and I've never left this space. So I'm looking forward to uh, you know dissecting everything that we talked about and uh, you know carrying on the discussion. That's awesome. So I thought really his opening was was very interesting. And again, for those of you who who had a chance to listen, it is kind of a longer podcast. It's about 47 minutes. A ton, a ton of great information. Just I was blown away throughout the whole um, conversation between Brad, myself, and Dr. Ross. But, you know, he really did kind of set the stage in his opening, and he actually talked about what his mission was. Every day getting up and trying to make this a little bit more secure country, a more secure world, and, and the things that we do uh, to work together to achieve that, uh, that goal, that objective, I think is, is critically important. It's so interesting to think about, you know, him going ahead and what his 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 goal is every day about getting up and, and you know, making this world and this country more secure. So let's now talk about the, the publications. Right. Um, there were a number of them that Dr. Ross had talked about. But I thought, Brad, with your background for like 
me having a networking background. Some of this is confusing with all the various publications. And so if we could sum it up in layman's terms for us and then tell us where it may be, you know, appropriate to use that actual publication. Yeah, sure. And I think a good place to start with that would be uh, when we talked about FISMA, because what that did was um, it it had Ron, uh, you know, Ron was charged with coming up with a security control catalog that would establish the control requirements based on that Federal Information Security Management Act. And um, he mentioned that there was a, you know, a predecessor artifact for, you know, assessing, you know, the security of federal information systems that, you know, used almost as a model that he had to expand upon. But it's interesting. I think even taking a step back from that, when you take a look at NIST special publications, you're going to see the word guidance written on them. And I think, Pam, you and I can both agree when we see guidance to us, that means non-compulsory, right? Not required. Guidance is guidance. But Ron also mentioned that ultimately FISMA drove something called FIPS, which are Federal Information Processing Standards. And specifically, he called out FIPS 199 and FIPS 200. And what he did was to meet the mandates driven by those FIPS requirements was develop the 860 for FIPS 199 and the 853 for FIPS 200. And this is something that I had been working on for about two years, very early on in my career in the late 90s. And this came out right at the right time to amplify my understanding of cybersecurity. And I think if I were to break it down very simply, the 860 is incredibly important because what it does is it takes data elements or data sets. Let me give you an example. Uh, personally identifiable information, uh, as an example. And then from there, it's it, it creates a catalog and it bases if personally identifiable information was compromised or exposed, what would the impact be to data confidentiality, data integrity, and data availability on a qualitative matrix, low, medium, or high? And as he categorized each one of those data elements based upon the consequence of loss, if you had a high watermark of a medium impact for confidentiality, integrity, or availability, you have what's known as a moderate impact information system. And then that dictated what level of controls you needed to implement in the 853, because there's a low baseline, a moderate baseline, and a high baseline. And for someone like me who was learning this stuff, it was a very, very easy matrix to really wrap your hands around. But more importantly, as I you know, started maturing in my career, and I think what you know, most uh, practitioners can really understand is, is that you know, we don't need to implement a series of draconian controls to protect low impact information. As an example, you may have an application internally on your intranet that does nothing but update the daily lunch menu for the cafe in the building that is shared space. You are not going to implement a high baseline of controls to protect that data, right? right? So um, it, 
it introduced, I, I would say, a catalog of controls that were required for federal information systems that were commensurate with the data sensitivity process handled and stored by an application. That's really interesting, Brad, because he actually focused in on the importance, right, of um, going ahead and blocking and tackling. Uh, let's listen to what he had said. Cybersecurity has some basic blocking and tackling that we all need to do, cyber hygiene, whatever you want to call it. But it doesn't end there because every organization has uh, different assets. They value their assets differently. They have critical missions. Interesting how he talks about the value of the assets differently, right? He also, I don't know for the listeners, if, if again, if you haven't listened to it, please go listen to the, the full recording. He also then went on to talk about how important it was to be to being agile and flexible because it's such a dynamic world we live in today, right? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, I, I would be remiss too if I didn't mention something else that was going on at this time too that was very interesting to me is that, uh, you know, there was a lot of conjecture around federal circles at that time, uh, especially with people that were doing like, uh, you know, data classification or derivative classifiers. And, you know, the general comment was, when did PII become more important or critical than classified information? Right. And when, you know, I was exposed to a number of internally developed applications in the federal government where we use the SSN, like the national ID number, all the time for internal employees. And it didn't matter what the application was for. You would think that that should only be used in certain applications where it's required. We were using it in everything. So this really kind of spawned a, a PII reduction initiative to say, hey, if a social security number or some kind of other personally identifiable, uh, sensitive, personally identifiable information attribute is not required in a, a protective detail system or you know something that really isn't geared around the management of human capital, get rid of it, right? So um, that, was, that was something that was really interesting here. And I think it, it kind of falls in line with the way that we're, you know, valuing assets differently, because that really drove down the impact of a lot of applications when you started removing these PII elements, right? Yeah. So um, it, it, it is quite fascinating to hear him say that. So, so really, 800-53 and 800-60 really do tie together and are beneficial to not only, right, it was created for the federal government, correct? But it's really beneficial to the private sector in being able to classify and rank applications and data. Uh, I, absolutely. Put it this way. I think a lot of organizations, and you and I have a lot of experience in this space. I, I mean, think about the organizations where you've been and their attempts to classify the information that they have. You know, for me, when I broke into the, the private industry, I always tried to simplify it. Uh, you know, I would have, you know, public confidential and maybe protected or restricted, right? And I, we would almost treat all data as confidential. That way, implementing controls, I could do it holistically rather than saying, uh, we need to find all these buckets of confidential information and then imply encryption or whatever it was and then say, oh, oh, wait, that's public. We don't need to do that. I think it was easier to just by default treat all information as confidential and then start applying controls. But 
either which way you spin it, it's a tough proposition. It's a tough endeavor. So private industries could use this as a model when they're going through and they're cataloging and categorizing all their systems. Um, and it's not surprising to see some organizations when they go through that, even an organization of 5,000 people, they may say, wow, we've, we've done that exercise in our data center and we have 3,000 servers. You, that, that's almost a server for every other individual. <laughs> it's crazy. But you know, he also talked about, and I think it was really important, and, and you and I talked to, um, talk to peers in the industry about this, I, I think on a regular basis, that you can't protect everything. And the classification, right, of your apps, your data and so forth, and understanding what is most important to your business and really focusing on securing that as opposed to, to your earlier point, you're not going to secure the lunch menu, right? right. You're going to secure your crown jewels, focus your, your security there in your controls versus everything. And I think for so many of us, for so many years, to a point you've already made, we tried to secure everything. But how realistic is that anymore? It's really not realistic when you've got to focus on really going ahead and the crown jewels. What is keeping your business running, which ties back to right the, these controls and so forth that, that are in these publications? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that he talked about too, which I, I think is um, probably the most widely used special publication in the private industry was, you know, the 837, which is the, you know, the, the NIST risk management framework, because a lot of organizations, when they're building their security programs, they looking for a risk management standard is not a bad idea. And um, a lot of organizations, you know, I, um, when I was, uh, managing the global security program at Steptoe and Johnson uh, International Law Firm, we made the decision to go with ISO um, for the way that we were going to manage, mitigate, and treat risk. And the reason that we did that was I had a global clientele base, and grabbing something from the International Standards Organization seemed a little more apropos than grabbing something from NIST, which is more um, U.S. focused. But a lot of organizations look at that 837 as, hey, this is going to be the foundational way that we manage and mitigate risk. And then from there, you know, they can add their own organizational process assets to it or, um, you know, other internal procedures. So I think it's a great foundation. And I, personally, uh, you know, as someone who's been working in this uh, field for quite some time, the 837 stacks up well against ISO, Octave, COVID, and some of these other risk management frameworks out there. So Brad, can you, can you talk a little bit about the fact of for a private or commercial organization, um, you touched on the fact that's important for them, you know, to look at their risk management and so forth. But when you really frame up, what, what does it tell you relative to the risk management framework? What, like, what is it, what is it actually saying in that publication? Yeah. So some of, some of the things that we've talked about today, which is, you know, really focusing on what it is that you are trying to protect. And yeah, you know, one of the things I really like about these risk management frameworks is that they're, they're really focused on the way that we spend on controls. Because look, most organizations today, cyber spend is not going to directly impact your net revenue, especially when it comes to board talk, right? Uh, they kind of look at us as a, you know, a cost center or an overhead expense. But I, 
I think that when I started taking a look at risk management frameworks, it, it got me out of the federal space. Because remember, in the federal space, things are mandatory. Uh, we just need to implement that. That is the letter of the law. When you get into the private space, it, you, you need to be focused more on you know, shareholders, customers, and you know, driving revenue to the business. So I started taking a look at these risk management frameworks, 837 included, and really started doing what I would call um, control effectiveness analysis, right? So when I was looking at a control, I would say, you know, is it actually preventing a risk? Is it executed manually? Is it understandable? Is it scalable? Is it verifiable? Is it sustainable? Is it scoped appropriately? Is it timely? Is it mandatory? Is it measurable? Is it repeatable? These are things in the federal government I did not need to think about. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense though, right? Um, and, and again, looking at the 800-37 as to, to your point, going through your controls, identifying all the controls and where do they rank up against risk. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So he also actually talked about um, 800-171. Yeah. And uh, from what I'm understanding, and he also stated that there's a rewrite happening. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about 800-171 and, and what, what, is, what should somebody be thinking about when they're looking at that publication? Yeah. So this obviously came out uh, after I broke into the, uh, the the private space. So this is one I've always been interested on. And I hear a lot about this from certain customers, right? But the 871 framework uh, established, and, and at first, even taking a step back before that, I would call it more of a companion to the 853, which is those mandatory controls for federal agencies and federal information systems. The 871 framework established uh, specific areas of cybersecurity controls that contractors and partners need to implement to a minimum standard. So as an example, if you or your company or any other company you do business with has a federal contract, then you're required to be NIST 800-171 compliant. So to give you know, one of the things I always look for is I, I want some concrete examples of what this is. So think contractors for the Department of Defense, contractors for the General Services Administration, you know, consulting companies with federal contracts, uh, universities and research institutions that are supported by federal grants. The 800-171 gives that minimum baseline for them to protect what the government calls CUI, controlled unclassified information. And it's interesting to me because right at the tail end of, of you know, my transition out of the public sector into the private one, uh, we used to use the term SUI a lot, which was sensitive unclassified information. It may still be used in some agencies, but I used to chuckle, um, you know, seeing some high level um, undersecretaries, uh, you know, throw SUI around the room. <laughs> uh, you got to love acronyms, right? Mm -hmm. So... So one of the other things that I thought, and, and as you can see, there were very interesting things that we talked about. He had talked about an interesting approach to 800-160. And, and I'm going to quote him um, in what he had actually stated when he talked about the waterline. He stated that the vast majority of our cybersecurity problems would be solved if we could build better hardware, software, and firmware and in other words, it's building more resilient technology that benefits the purchaser or consumer, which is above the waterline. Well, and, and, and 
don't everybody go out and think that you got to go ahead and run out and buy all kinds of hardware and all this. If I understand correctly, Brad, he was really referring to really the developers, the manufacturers or, or the providers of, of a solution of a product for the actual customers. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember I said during that, that was kind of an aha moment for me. And, um, and it, it goes, goes in line with, with some of the things I fundamentally believe in that I, you know, talk to, to, you know, peers about quite regularly is that we need to do better in this space, right? You know, we need to, you know, and even taking, even thinking a little bit, you know, broader about this, we're not just talking about the big technology vendors out there. Cause think about that for a second. Everyone is a technology vendor. Pam, if we open up our phones right now and start taking a look at some of the apps, look, I got a Costco app right here. I know for a fact, I gave them my name, my email address. I, who knows? I might've had to even give them my date of birth for whatever reason. They are in possession of my personally identifiable information. Now think about all the other uh, you know, things that we enroll for, but in that are supported by some kind of technology, whether it's a mobile app or what have you, everyone is a technology provider today. And that means that we all need to be concerned about building more cyber resilient and penetration uh, resistant technology, right? And that's where I had this aha moment where based upon some things that we've seen, um, not, not just in the, in the recent past, like with, with SolarWinds and Kaiseya, but, you know, for instance, Microsoft, I, I, I don't know when this came about, but it seems like it's been in my entire professional career. They have a day dedicated to fixing security flaws. It's called Patch Tuesday. We need to do a better job with the development and distribution of our technology um, and I think that this 800, 160 and Ron, Ron didn't, you know, didn't go as far as this, but, you know, is this leading to, you know, government regulation and oversight of, of, of just that technology development and distribution, you know, are we going to be held to certain standards before we can put these products out to market? I mean, there's probably some pros and cons to that. I haven't, you know, given that as much thought as I probably need to. But um, regardless of, of of which way that goes, the 800-160 today serves as really good guidance that I think a lot of people need to be looking at to really infuse and bake in security to their system development life cycles. And we're seeing that in a lot of organizations with DevSecOps and some of these other automated processes. So it's... It's an exciting time, and I think it feeds into this idea that we just need to get better. Because the other thing I would say on this, um, and I, I live this, and Pam, you probably did too, because I, I know that uh, you know we both uh, you know came over to Zscaler at around the same time. But if you remember the um, the outcry with uh, Spectre and Meltdown, which were um, you know firmware related you know vulnerabilities, th those had been in place for for 20 years. And it really kind of just feeds the notion that risk is temporal. You may not find flaws for two, five, 10 years down the road in the development, but the decisions that were made then, you know, affect risk in the future. That's what I mean by it being temporal. And that's just unacceptable. We need to be better than that. And, 
you know, thing, you know, guidance like the, the 800-160 is, is leading us in that direction. Some organizations think that going forward, they can, they can go ahead and sustain the future staying as is, right? There's some, some thought process there that, I, you know, I run into and I'm sure you do on a regular basis that, hey, we're good. Um, yeah, we have some pains. Yeah, you know, but we're secure. We're good. Um, I, I don't think anyone can take that that stance any longer, right? right? Yeah. Um, it's only a matter of time. You know, we used to talk about the fact of, you know, if we were ever breached or if, right? It was always the ifs. And I don't know anyone who can say that anymore about the, you can't say it any longer, right? Yeah. You have to talk about the fact of when. And have you put to your point through all these, these publications and so forth, have you actually put the right controls in place to minimize the blast radius, right? Mm-hmm. And reduce the risk to your company. Let's face it, to your point about, you know, the, the whole private and commercial sector, it's about company reputation, yeah. right? When you have a massive breach and you've got to tell the world you had a problem, it does affect the bottom line, oh, at least for a matter true. of time, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's another excellent point because let's take the Colonial Pipeline incident, for, for example. You know, when that, they, they got hit with that ransomware attack, do you know they really didn't suffer anything that I believe would have required them to report that? The reason they reported it is because the entire eastern seaboard was out of petrol. So it kind of goes to the point that when you take a look at national critical infrastructure, this kind of feeds into that. And the federal government, and I think governments all over the world are going to be looking at that because in this country, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but I would be willing to bet that over 75% of our critical infrastructure is privately owned. It's not you know, managed by the government or federally owned. Yeah. Which goes back to the fact of why our peers out there should be looking and focusing and really studying the various publications to assure they have the right controls in place, right? Spot on. So with that, you know, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Hopefully um, you found this episode interesting and beneficial you'll go back and listen to the full recording with Dr. Ross because it had some, it had great information and, and we only summed up the high level, you know, touch points of, of the actual um, conversation. But I want to go ahead and leave you with one more uh, interesting statement he stated. I'm bullish on the future of cybersecurity, on security engineering, and about the technology in general because I think that technology fuels the United States, it gives us a stronger economy and it gives us our national security. And with that, Brad, thank you again so much. This was great. Um, you had some great insight to explaining for our listeners when they should think about the various publications, uh, which publications to think about, when to potentially use them. And uh, I look forward to another episode in the future with you. Always enjoy our dialogues. For listening to Cloudy with a Chance of Trust. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find Lisa Lorenzen and Pam Kubiatowski on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.cscaler.com or on LinkedIn. 
Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult with your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2022.